I remember there was this one pitch in particular to an investor and he was just shooting everything down. And I don't know, I don't, I, at this point, I don't even think it was specific to that pitch, but with the timing of it, there were just so many things that happened. And after that pitch, I just remember my mind spiraling into this, like, what are the decisions you're making with your life? Like you could have done like all of these things. Like, and I remember it was one of the first times where I had spoken to myself in a way that was along the lines of like, you're a failure, right? And You guys, Fatima Diko is such a star. You're in for a treat. She's a Columbia-trained engineer. She holds an MBA from Stanford, and she's a two-times founder. She's currently building Sugar, which is a prop tech company that is transforming apartment dwellers, aka strangers, into neighbors, and get this, getting those neighbors to become friends. I love it. We'll learn from Fatima on how to fundraise, founder tips, especially for minorities, and her journey of building up self-belief, starting from Mali, being an immigrant from there to New York City, up until where she is today. It's also a really fun chat. I love especially chatting about dancing with her at the end. Here's Fatima. Hi, girl. Hi, how are you? I'm so great. I miss you a ton. I'm so excited for this. I am. A catch-up has been way, way, way long overdue. And this is like the perfect, you know, thing. But we need a separate catch-up. Congratulations as well on the marriage. And congrats to you on the engagement. (laughs) Congrats to us. Thank you. I feel like just the other day we were talking about, you know, the beginning of your journey. So it's so beautiful to see. I know. I am so lucky. I adore Marcin. He just makes me the happiest woman and he's the best. And we had a fantastic wedding. I want to hear all about your wedding planning, however we can help. But we had a ton of fun. It was a blast. 10 out of 10. When two amazing people come together, it's like the perfect union of everything. And so I'm so happy (sighs) for you guys. Thank you. And you know, I feel so lucky because it's a really rare thing, I think, right? To find someone who you just like, you like, you love spending all your time with them. I think it's easy to love someone, but maybe not like them. And we spend so much time together. (laughs) And, you know, the more I go through this thing called life and the more I, it's, it's even helped put entrepreneurship into perspective in terms of like what you're pursuing in this world. And love, I think is the biggest gift we can get, right? It's like when you find your person, you're forever rich and it almost takes like need away from like, you know, of course I think being successful and doing all these other things is great. But at the end of the day, love I think is the, the reason we're all here. And so when you find that, it's so rare and so special. So I'm so happy for you both. Yeah. And I'm happy for you. When are you guys getting married? Are you getting married? One doesn't need to get married, but what's the latest? So we are planning our official wedding for next year. We actually got married. We only told our family and friends. We got married on 22222. We're really (laughs) big on um, universal things. Dates? 
Yeah, dates, numbers, our whole story. At one point, I'll tell you our story because it's so okay. insane. And it involves a woman on the street named Scorpio Moon coming up to me and delivering a message from my deceased grandmother and mentioned her by name and like wow. brought up. Yeah, it's like a crazy story. I was telling a couple of GSBers and everyone was like, their mouths were open the whole time. <laughs> the story was being shared. Um, but yeah, she was pretty much like at the time I was with my other partner um, and she was like, you need to say no to this proposal. And you're, yeah, and see, it like led to me going on a 10-day silent meditation retreat. I flipped my life around completely. And the whole, I ended up going on a follow-up call with her and the whole thing is recorded. She's like, hey, you have a soulmate named Charles and like explained everything. Yeah, it's like all what? recorded. Yeah, the woman's name is Scorpio Moon. I like called my friends. Everyone thought I was going crazy in the pandemic. They're like, they're <laughs> like, woman named Scorpio Moon. Like, tell me about yourself. It's really <laughs> insane. But we, um, yeah, like I, that number is very significant. Like at one point in Baltimore, I lived on 222 Charles Street. His name is Charles. He's two years, wow. two months, two weeks older than me. And then there's a bunch of other synchronicities. Um, wow. But yeah, we're planning for Malibu next year. We just started wedding planning. So I might need to ask you guys some questions. Yes, we're here. Uh, yeah. Our biggest advice is just have fun, have a blast. It's your day. It's your thing. Enjoy it. Yeah, that's what I'm sure. Because like at the end of the day, sometimes the wedding, the marriage, the marriage is for you guys, but the wedding can become about like family and other people. And like, I actually mm. want to have fun at the wedding. Yeah. Um, and then from just like a financial perspective, like I always think about we're like, oh, this could be a down payment on a home or it can right. be. But, you know, I do want to have a wedding. I want to have that experience and do all the things. Yeah. But I want it to be, we're thinking about it being a love festival. Uh, I love it. Yeah. So that's kind of still exploring, but we'll love your thoughts. You looked beautiful, by the way. Aw, thank you. Yeah. Jawu was there? Yes, she married us. Wait, she and Jeff she was married us. Oh, yeah, it was oh. wonderful. It was wonderful. So the other thing I would say is just have it be as personal to you and Charles as you can. It's again, it's your day. You don't need to do whatever anyone else wants you to do. Right. Um, do what makes you happy. So for us, that was having our friends who really know us well officiate. I was wonderful to have uh, a guy and a woman who really know us. I loved the juxtaposition of them having the female and male uh, perspectives. And, and yeah, we had everyone stayed in, in this villa over the weekend and it felt like a huge slumber party all together wow. and every every event was at the villa so there was no travel logistics um and we had lots of dancing so much eating and so much just meaningful conversation and chatting with the people we adore so that was, is i'm so excited for you like you have this ahead of you and <laughs> It's the best. And yes, okay. I mean, both of them, like the last thing I'll say is they just embody love and having right? that. I can't even imagine what the energy was like. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, we feel, and the other thing I, that we both really value is our community, our friends, and our family. We, like, it's such an important thing to both of us, sure. our friends, and it was wonderful to be able to lean on them for that and have them be such a big part of our big weekend. We had lots of speeches, lots of fun things, too, so it was wonderful to incorporate them oh, like that. Amazing. <laughs> well, I'm sure you guys are going to share more pictures and stuff soon. Yes, I yeah. will. 
We're waiting. The streets are waiting for the pictures. <laughs> I love it. I love you. I miss you. You're amazing. Speaking of you, we're here to chat about you and what you're building with sugar. You have raised $3.5 million thus far, which is a huge congrats, my dear. Thank that you. is amazing. But also, I want to start from even earlier with your story. And we share lots of similarities. We both spent the very early part of our lives in West Africa. And for you particularly, you were born in Mali. Your parents moved to the U.S. because you had some health issues and they wanted to make sure that you could get the best care. And so I'd love you to start us off there and talk about your interest in entrepreneurship and how that got formed before we dive into Jetpack and Sugar. Sure. Um, you know... It's interesting being born in Mali and then coming to the United States at an early age um, played a big role in just generally being a curious person. Um, it's almost as if that sense of curiosity um, was formed from a sense of um, needing or wanting to survive or fit in. And so there mm -hmm. was, you know, this desire to just ask why about everything going on around me. Um, I remember that starting at a very early age. And I think those who ask the question why um, tend to not only question things on a deeper level, but then also identify problems. I remember just thinking about ways things could be improved, um, like everything when we were at amusement parks, you know, even the way teachers in elementary school <laughs> were teaching certain things. Um, and you know, one of the things one of my mentors when I was at Procter & Gamble said that really planted a powerful seed um, for me becoming an entrepreneur was that great ideas often happen when two old ideas meet for the first time. Um, and that, you know, it started to bring a lot of things together from my childhood and, you know, made me think that, you know, I don't need to be the smartest person or come up with something first. But if you're this prolific noticer and you're looking at your surroundings and you're, you know, uncovering problems or opportunities and you can kind of draw parallels and bring things together, then, you know, you can be an entrepreneur. And for me, that was half the battle in just psychologically believing that I could be someone um, to not only create something, but then bring it to the world that people could use. Um, and I think that's a big part of even starting the journey, right? Believing that you can be someone that does that. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about this during the convo, but that's probably how that, you know, immigrant experience led to wanting to become an entrepreneur. Absolutely. I actually really resonate with this, forming this opinion that I actually can be an entrepreneur and create something new. And for me growing up in Sierra Leone, it was just because there, this wasn't really an example of something I could be. And so coming to this realization that Jennifer, you can actually be an entrepreneur was something I had to do really think about. And I know for you, your father was an engineer and you with him were able to really cultivate your love of curiosity and figuring things out. Was that partially how you started to think more about yourself as an entrepreneur? What else was there? Sure. Well, for you have amazing memory, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And I think it just speaks to your I get that a lot. Yeah. You just have I just care. So when you tell me something, I think like I internalize it. You're like really I think it comes from this like deep love you have for people and understanding people's stories and you just remember so many details that like I think I told you that years and years ago. It's like one tiny nugget and it yeah, those things really matter to me. So that I that's incredible. Um, my dad, so much to say about my dad, but him being an entrepreneur, I mean, just his journey um, growing up in a village where, you know, he didn't have access to computers and he taught himself so much, including like building a computer on his own from scratch. And I remember growing up and when we got to the United States, I read some of my earliest memories uh, involved putting computers um, and building computers from scratch with him and, you know, looking at a motherboard and just like looking at the tiny components mm. that make it up and, you know, piecing everything together. And that process, you know, as simple as it sounds of just, you know, physically with your hands, like putting things together. And then at the end, having something that functions and can do so many things, um, that was an incredible experience. I think it just led to, again, not only this excitement to build, but this underlying belief that I can build, right? And I think, you know, I always go back to that because I I believe the sky isn't the limit your belief system is. And in order to really build something or bring it to the world, you have to see it and believe it and then you do it, right? And so, so much of these early experiences built my belief system in a way that I'm really grateful for. I love it. The sky isn't the limit. Your belief system is so, so true. And it takes lots of reps to rewire your brain to learn, actually, I can do this. And sounds like you got some of those reps in with your dad. What are other experiences that contributed towards you going on this path of entrepreneurship? Yeah, I, you know, I couldn't agree more. I think in addition to building upon the early experiences that allow you to have that belief, there's also this work that needs to be done, or at least um, for me that existed in terms of unlearning limiting beliefs, right? Um, And a lot of those things can go, you know, back to childhood, you know, super simple experiences that may have consciously or subconsciously impacted um, the way that you see the world and the way that you see yourself. And so, you know, these underlying beliefs could be, you know, as I am unsafe, you know, I am powerless, I am not worthy. There's a ton of things that you might not even be aware that you believe. And so for me, one of the pieces of, as you mentioned, there's a ton of iteration and there's a ton of rejection and there's a ton of failure that happens, you know, at um, a very, very high rate. And so it's important to do the work to not internalize, you know, some of the rejections by VCs or by potential hires or by customers um, as an indication of your capabilities or who you are as a person, your potential. And that took me a really, really long time to do that work. Um, You know, I talk a ton about entrepreneurship in therapy, um, you know, going to other folks who look at this from a spiritual perspective as well. And it was only when I started doing that work of unlearning things and then 
building upon the early experiences that did give me that initial belief was when I could truly start visualizing at a higher level um, and making some things happen for me in a way that was magnetic. So I've kind of seen both sides of it and it really starts with that self-work as well. When would you say you started to be able to visualize yourself as an entrepreneur? And I, I have a sense this will continue to be a work in progress. It's not just a one, oh, done, I see it. I'm it now. Totally. You know, I, at a very young age, I think I visualized myself being an entrepreneur in different ways. What is evolving is the scale of which I see myself having an impact as an entrepreneur, right? Uh, you know, in middle school uh, or high school, I remember I was selling these SAT index cards where like the word would be on one side, the definition on the other. And I would make like dozens of these little packs on index cards, buy them for like a dollar and then sell them for like five bucks. And you know, arbitrage, <laughs> arbitrage <laughs> opportunity. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I did that at an early age, you know, a ton of things like made mixtapes for people. I remember I would make custom mm -hmm. mixtapes and charge people like a dollar per song that they wanted. And so, you know, I was doing a lot of these things at an early age, but I don't think I was necessarily thinking about these things as um, signs of my future career path. Um, similarly to you, you know, there was never really this, you know, understanding that entrepreneurship is a career path, right? In fact, when I left P&G to start my company, my parents freaked out because it was, you know, we came from Mali, you know, to come to mm -hmm. school, get a job. This is what you should be doing. You know, it was very scary for me to take that leap of faith. Um, and so I guess I've always seen myself in that way, but I'm still continuing to do the work to see myself having a broader and broader impact. And it's only once you, again, the sky's not the limit your belief system is once you see yourself having an impact at, you know, a national or global scale and seeing millions of people use your product, then it's easier for you to think about, you know, both the product, the sales team, what you need to do to make that a reality. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. I love it. And from my memory of our conversations, you graduated Columbia in chemical engineering. Both of us were chemi. That's and right. then you went to P&G, lots of experimentation. You left to start your own company, My Best Box, which got acquired. And then we met at business school at Stanford and you were working on Jetpack. Yep. And I know that you learned a ton outside of the classroom at Stanford while building Jetpack. Jetpack. So curious to know what some of those lessons were. And for context, for those who don't know, Jetpack was a very hyper-localized Craigslist type of model where you would have items available for purchase and then you'd have people at various universities around the country be delivering some of these items. Again, the memory is impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what I should do. I should just do that for a living. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, that's exactly what Jetpack You're like, did. if you need to remember your life, just come to me. Yeah, literally just go to dad. <laughs> um, Jetpack, yeah, you know, I've always been really excited about this concept of community, hyper-local community, and Jetpack was a way for people on campus to, you know, very quickly buy and borrow and connect with the people who are closest by. Um, and, you know, obviously learned a lot, you know, in the classroom, but then learned even more outside of the classroom, right? 
when you're building and you realize that, you know, one tiny change in the product could have a profound impact on the user engagement, right? And so I remember launching iterations of the product, you know, not really seeing the engagement, you know, so naive at the time, like, oh, we're gonna have this launch, everyone's gonna use it, it's gonna, gonna be, be great. great. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and like three people use it and you're like, oh my yeah. God, this, you know, what am I doing? Um, but really, <laughs> it's that constant iteration, as you said, right? And like noticing even, you know, when you have as little as 10 users, understanding what motivated them to use the product and how do you capitalize off of that, right? Um, you know, it could be something as simple as where the button is located during onboarding or some element of the onboarding experience. And if you have that patience and that obsession with the user, right? And this is why I think a lot of VCs love that founder product fit. Like when you yourself um, identify with the user, it's easier for you to get into like the mindset of that user. And so for me, I learned a ton about, you know, the fact that it involves both the fortitude, the patience and the resilience to go through several iterations, um, but an understanding that it's very rarely this light bulb moment where, you know, you do this thing, you launch it, everyone comes to your product, right? I mean, occasionally that happens, right? And when it happens, we write stories about it because it's so rare. Right. Um, but really it looks more like that iteration. And, you know, some of my favorite memories at the GSB include talking, you know, to different founders. I remember Marchin and I um, would talk yeah. a ton. He would just sketch <laughs> different screens <laughs> in the app. And he's like, have you thought about, you know, the button being over here and then adding this feature? And th those conversations really meant a lot to me um, and learning from other founders' journeys. Uh, you know, founders I really, really admired, you know, hearing stories like Marchins and other people building phenomenal things. And, you know, it's very rarely linear. So it helped mm -hmm. me understand, you know, everyone's trajectory is so different. And it inspired me, you know, on a profound level. And it's still, these are the conversations I think back to today. Um, and it gives me so much fuel to keep going um, and I, yeah, it's the people of the business school experience that I've taken so much away from. I so agree. The founder journey can be very lonely and hearing other founders experiences, understanding that it's rarely ever linear. That is the exception. It's most always ups and downs. It looks like a sine curve, ups and downs of iterating, figuring out what works, pivoting when you need to pivot, but persisting. You got to have this balance of persistence, but continual learning and listening to the market and the your users and, and then using that to improve the product. Uh, and it's invaluable knowing that you're not the only one going through that. So you since then speaking of pivoting you pivoted to sugar i love this name sugar i'd love you to tell us about sugar but also what was your aha moment for other founders entrepreneurs etc what was it that and what did you learn and how did you come about with moving jetpack to sugar absolutely um you know as i mentioned Jetpack was all about at its core community, right? And connecting people who are closest by, um, you know, we had continued to work on this 
after graduation, you know, we got really excited with a lot of the increases in engagement that we had seen from, you know, just making a lot of changes and learning more about the consumer. And, you know, at the same time, I'd moved to L.A. Um, and, you know, we had launched that different campuses around the city, USC, UCLA. Um, and, you know, the entire team, we were just very big on community, community, community. And at the time, I was also living in an apartment in Los Angeles where there's hundreds of people in the apartment. And it's funny, I'm like working on this startup, Jetpack, all about community. And I realized I don't okay. know a single person who lives in my building, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that as we become adults, um, adult friendships can be really difficult, right? You know, one of the things my parents would always say is that when it comes to friendships, you know, four quarters is better than a hundred pennies, right? And really mm -hmm. focusing on, you know, a few deep connections with people you have. And I realized that I didn't know anyone in LA and that really, really hit me in a lot of ways. So we put this QR code in the elevator. At the time it was still the Jetpack app. Like it was literally the same thing. We're like, let's just try it in this apartment building. Um, and it was very simple. The sign said, want to connect with the community here. Um, like we had a couple bullets, you know, buy and borrow items, find local events, you know, ask questions, like very basic bullets, just a simple thing. Um, and within um, a couple of days, we had over half of the building on the platform, right? Like just connecting wow. with each other. Yeah, it was incredible, right? And what we started to see was that you know, there is a loneliness problem going on, right? Like people yeah. are very lonely in this country. And now with one in four people working from home and people experiencing loneliness, um, people don't know their neighbors. And once we got, we got so excited seeing this engagement and we realized that this is the same thing that we were trying to solve uh, with Jetpack, but now in apartment buildings, right? And we started to do a bit more research into the industry. And we saw that, you know, this is, you know, before Jetpack was a B2C play, but this is actually a B2B play here um, or B2B2C, yeah. right? Where people are yeah. selling this software to apartment managers because apartment managers know that a sense of community is directly tied to lease renewal rates, right? So there's this benefit of buying products like sugar, but that was really the aha moment, right? Like we're working on this thing. And at the same time, I don't know people in my building. Um, and, you know, B2B distribution, while it has its cons, there's a lot of pros in terms of its ability to get your product into lots of people's hands pretty quickly. Um, so that was really exciting to us. Um, and the name sugar, like you mentioned, it comes from this concept of borrowing a cup of sugar from your neighbors. Um, and we've gotten away from that as a society. So we're really excited about bringing that back. Yes. I love this notion. Like I said, we care so much about community and it just really transforms your life knowing you have people who you can count on, you can be there for, just adds this much needed added layer of meaning in life and really appreciate it. And totally, we've moved away from that with being in suburbs now, technology, which is great for many things, but not so great for this. Uh, and I think what I hear from what you described is there are a couple of things, right? So A, you moved to a new city and you wanted to get to know your neighbors. I think with COVID pandemic, we had this spike in loneliness. 
uh, and you tried this new thing and you were open to to the possibility of being able to do something else. I think you also had a transformation from maybe three people at the start of Jetpack using your product to now like 50 people, <laughs> which is great to be eyes open yep. to this. And, and it was a B2B to C play, which is very exciting and interesting as well. I have a question. How did you navigate this with your investors, with folks on your team? Yeah. You know, the beauty of having a mission or a vision um, that is specific enough where it's very clear, it's understandable, it's measurable, but broad enough where you can be path agnostic to reaching that mission or vision is really important. Um, because at the end of the day, you could make decisions um, internally that are aligned to the mission or the vision, right? Um, for us, the mission has always been to unlock the power of proximity. Um, and that was really, you know, when we think about Jetpack, the power of being able to tap into others and within close range and buying and borrowing and leveraging their knowledge of the surroundings. They're like, hey, like what local restaurant should I go to? You know, the people closest by, there's so much power in that, right? And so this, you know, going to Sugar was a natural progression of another iteration of how we can actualize that vision. Um, and so I would say having that mission or vision ingrained in the team is so important. Um, and in terms of talking to investors, I think very similarly, um, when, you know, the data, you know, we always say one of the things we talk a lot about on our team is that the key to execution is keep, keeping things simple, clear, and immeasurable. Um, and when you keep these goals simple, clear, and measurable, then you always have the data to rationalize why another decision or direction may make sense. And so both of those things, I think, explaining the pivot as it relates to the mission or the vision, while simultaneously having the data or metrics to back up why a certain direction makes sense, I think that was really helpful. Um, investors were really understanding. I think the climate also made sense in terms of just so many shifts happening within the pandemic that I think investors were open to those looking for ways to not capitalize. I don't like this concept of capitalizing off of such a tragic time, but noticing right. opportunities to solve problems that people were very deeply experiencing during those moments. Absolutely. You are riding the waves of, to your point, one in four people are working from home. Loneliness is on in an all-time high rising. I think there's a sustainability play here, aspect here as well, of being able to share resources with your neighbors, not having to buy everything, and then creating a greater sense of community. Let's talk about operations right now at Sugar. Where are you located? How's the business doing? Cool. Um, so we have a fully remote team. Um, the team is located um, multiple cities across the country. Uh, currently, Sugar, um, we have over 10,000 multifamily units um, under a contract. Um, Sugar is live in several states around the country, which we're excited about. One of our goals um, within the next quarter or two is to be live in all states in the United States. 
Um, Exciting. Yeah. We're, we would love to have sugar in our apartment building. We can we can help make this happen. Amazing. Um, yeah. And that's one of the initiatives we're launching very soon, um, getting residents to be able to launch sugar at their property even before the manager is on board. Um, we're really excited about that. We've been getting a lot of demand. Um, we have tons of customers. You know, we sell directly to property managers and owner groups. So we've been excited about um, having customers, again, all around the country. And our goal is to turn millions of strangers into neighbors and neighbors into friends. And so we're really excited about that. I love that. What is the cost? Is it to the apartment manager, the property manager, or is it to the resident? The, uh, the, the cost is directly to the property manager. Uh, we charge anywhere from $1 to $4 per unit per month um, to use the platform. And we find that, you know, going back to why property managers buy sugar um, is because there's more and more investment being placed on that resident experience um, because that resident experience leads to higher lease renewal rates, right? And so if absolutely they stop even one person from leaving a building per year, that pays back for sugar. Um, and there's more and more research that has been coming out that shows um, if a resident interacts with even three other people at their property, um, they're significantly more likely to renew their lease. Uh, so that's exciting. Absolutely. Sounds fun. So then speaking of the trends in living, communal living, what are some of the things that you're seeing that are exciting? Oh man, there's so many exciting things happening right now in prop tech. Um, you know, I, at the time we launched sugar, I wasn't even aware prop tech was this hot category. Yeah. I was like <laughs> prop tech, <laughs> um, but why it's exciting. Um, and then I'll, I'll go into some of the trends I'm excited about. It's exciting because real estate is the largest uh, global asset class. And there's only a 1% technology utilization rate, which is mind blowing when you think about it, right? How mm -hmm. is this massive industry not leveraging technology in a greater way, right? And you have all of these people, a ton of folks still paying their rent with checks, right? Especially with the rise of Gen Z, right? In the next couple of years, they will represent a majority of the workforce and they will, most of them will be renters versus home buyers and their largest expense is rent, right? And so there's a whole category of rent tech now blowing up, right? Where it's all these innovations. Um, you know, there's a really great company called the Susu that just became a unicorn where people are um, essentially building their credit score for paying their rent on time. So there's a ton of red tech um, solutions coming out. Um, other things I'm really excited about uh, co-living trends. So there's a lot of really great models that are coming out um, that are creating better experiences for co-living. Um, so what does it mean to live with eight other people that, um, you know, using data or AI, we're better able to better predict, um, you know, the types of roommates or the types of people who should live together. Um, and then what are these communal amenities that now exist for these co-living units, right? And then that also inherently significantly reduces the rent that people need to pay, right? Um, so co-living is really great. Similarly to co-working, I think we're going to see a lot more co-living um, solutions. Uh, I'm really, really excited about 
how amenities are changing at properties as well. Um, so you're seeing things like keyless entry is really big. Yes. Um, we actually integrate with uh, hardware products so people can unlock their doors on sugar as well. Um, but mm -hmm. more and more people want to be able to pay their rent, unlock their doors, submit maintenance requests, all within a single app and have that app feel similarly to the other apps that they're using, right? They don't want it to feel like it was designed in the 80s or the 90s, which a lot of the apps right. in this industry unfortunately feel like. Um, and so you're seeing a ton of innovation there with keyless entry. Um, and then, you know, I think the gamification of the renter experience is really cool too. Um, you're seeing people earn points for paying their rent on time. Um, we have our own system. It's called Karma Points. So people are earning Karma Points for um, letting someone buy or borrow an item, um, hosting an event, attending an event, um, and really gamifying that experience. So we're seeing that happen across the industry as well. Um, so a lot of really cool stuff happening. I could talk about this uh, for so long, but I think it's an exciting no time. Totally. Sounds fun. Sounds also like potential wins for picking your college roommate or roommate right out of school when you're tied on, strapped on cash and need to live with a couple of bunch of people. And then this keyless entry, I'm a huge fan. Just saves so much logistics wise. I imagine there is talk about security and how do you ensure security in this realm, particularly for families with children. And you mentioned that you guys are experimenting with that. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, it's such an important question. You know, when you start thinking about access control, right? I mean, there's a great deal of security concerns to think about um, during the earliest stages. Um, so what we do is we integrate directly with the top access control providers in the industry. Um, we currently integrate with companies like OpenPath and Brevo um, and companies who have built and implemented a series of, you know, security measures to ensure um, that everything is of the highest standards as it relates to safety. Um, and so that's been very important to us. Um, the ways in which we integrate with their products pretty much adopts all of the security measures they have in place. Like, for example, if there ever were to be a breach, which has never happened, you know, every single key and user would automatically um, be, um, you know, uh, you wouldn't be able to use any of the keys anymore um, deactivated. And so, you know, there's a lot of those measures in place. Um, not only can people unlock their doors, but they can also share digital keys via text message. So we do a ton of work, you know, if that key is shared with somebody that isn't the first recipient, the key is automatically deactivated. Um, and we haven't had any issues and the companies that we partner with haven't had any issues. Um, and that's really important for us. We just always measure it and it's a top um, uh, priority of ours. Yeah, that's Awesome to hear. All right, Fatima, let's transition back to your founding story and journey and lessons and tips and how you made it to where you are today. I'd love to talk about fundraising. This has been something you've shared with me, and I think it's an important story to share. Less than 1% of women of color get VC funding, and you are right there, my dear. Tell me about what your first break was, what it took you to get there, and then tangible tips for other founders, women of color, people of color that are looking to fundraise. Yeah, you know, it 
definitely is a major problem in the ecosystem. I think, you know, while work is being done, more work, um, you know, continues to need to be done, done, you know, and I want that number to just continue to go up to the point where, you know, we don't have to talk about every time, you know, Black woman number X raises, you know, I want it to be so common Mm -hmm. that, you know, we can start to use the term founder, right? Like, hey, this founder versus this black founder, right? Which being a black founder is such a core part of my identity. I love it. Um, Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, you know, we are great founders, right? And yeah, that is and also piece. 12 or 10, 10 to 12% of the US population is black people. And it would be great for that to be represented in the number of founders that get funded. Absolutely, absolutely. And so there's so many challenges, I mean, related to implicit bias, related to um, just how the VC landscape looks as well, right? You know, people tend to invest um consciously or subconsciously and people who look like them, um, you know, their networks happen to be people who look like them. And so, you know, there's this problem that stems across multiple um, layers of the ecosystem. For me, you know, it was was very, very, very difficult. I think that um, during the early days, I pitched, you know, close to 100 investors, right? And I had this notion of, I'm going to move to Silicon Valley and that's where the money is. I'm going to raise all this money. It's going to be great. Um, and again, just very quickly understood that, you know, there's going to be challenges, even just as a founder, there's going to be challenges. And then add in, you know, being black, being a woman and, you know, even age, which is something I didn't think a lot about um, until the fun- youth. Yeah, the, I think that, you know, statistically, we romanticize young entrepreneurs, but statistically, you know, successful entrepreneurs are on the older side. Um, is bit, So there's, you know, a lot to say about that as well. And so mm-hmm. coming straight out of business school and um, pitching, I didn't, I, I didn't get the movement that I wanted from the VC side, a ton of no's, a ton of no's. And I launched an equity crowdfunding campaign uh, which is um, how I raised the first 250K. Um, and that gave me the opportunity to even try, right? And this idea of a friends and family round wasn't, I didn't know that was a thing <laughs> until I got to yeah. business school. It's like you gotta have friends and you family. You gotta have friends and family. Um, and to go back to yeah. people like Marchin, right? Like these yeah. were the earliest believers who invested in my company and in yeah. me as a person. Right. And I'm so proud of that. I'm so proud that Martian was was there. Incredible. Right. And to have that belief at such an early stage and to be one of those people who played a pivotal role in like even having the opportunity to try. Right. Um, For me, I always ask who's given the opportunity to try, who's given the opportunity to fail. Right. And have that failure be looked at as you know, win versus, you know, reflection of their competence, you know, who's given the opportunity to pivot. Um, but really that who's given the opportunity to try question is so important to me. And if it wasn't for these early angel investment checks and equity crowdfunding, 
I don't think that I would be where I am right now, you know, in full transparency, because once I raised that, those early funds, we were able to build the first version of the product and collect data. And we went from those like three users of Jetpack to, you know, a few thousand transactions a week, which we were so excited about. Um, and then from there, pivoting to sugar. And then still, by the time we raised, um, you know, the $3.5 million in funding, we had already surpassed, you know, um, 300K in ARR and revenue, right? And so do I believe that these are the metrics that need to be in place in order to raise money? Um, I mean, maybe no. in this market <laughs> now, certainly. But I think at the earliest stages, there were so many things that had to be put in place um, that then made gave the opportunity to raise money. But I think that drop-off is really at the earliest stage where we as Black founders just need a few early believers, right? Like that first yes. That first yes mm -hmm. is so critical. It's easy to get other investors in once you have a few commitments, but getting people to believe in you um, before everyone sees it, um, that's what I think we need to do a better job of in terms of creating an equitable ecosystem. And I think things like equity crowdfunding is going to democratize access um, to capital for people who look like me and you. And I just want to see that continue to happen um, at a high rate because investing in Black founders, it's not a philanthropic thing, right? Like women founders yeah. perform very well. Black founders perform well. Like the numbers prove it, right? Like we we do a lot <laughs> with little funding and yeah. I just want to see more people um, just get opportunities across the board because I think it'll just create more ideas and overall a better society. Absolutely. I think it's about the scrappiness that you learn how to work with very little and make the most of very little throughout life. I would say anyone who com comes from an underprivileged background really, I think, has this persistence and drive and fire under them that I would bet on any day. And so really excited for the landscape to change. I think we've got now more people in color entering the VC and startup ecosystem. And everyone I talk to has this fire to transform the industry, to have it be more representative. So I'm optimistic that things will change eventually, but we still need to talk about it and work toward it. In terms of tangible tips for founders, I heard an alternative to a friends and family can be an equity campaign fundraiser what other tangible tips for our founders that are fundraising come to mind? For me, one is really trying to get traction is something so many investors really want to see who are less willing to take a bet on someone. Another one that comes to mind for me is even if it's a no with someone today, it's not a no for forever. It's just a no for right now and building this relationship with them, showing them your progress over time, especially if it's someone you haven't already had a relationship with, hasn't had a chance to understand your ability to execute. What other tips for founders that are fundraising from you? Yeah, um, all really phenomenal points, by the way. Um, I think, you know, the first point you said is critical, right? What have you done without raising money, right? Whether, you know, I think VCs want to see that you've done something. You're not just someone that's going to wait around for the money to come in and, you know, the more that you can validate your idea, right? And I think that's important just for yourself as a founder. It's very easy to have your friends and family say that something is a great idea, um, but ultimately mm -hmm. you have to be convinced and you have to do the work upfront to truly understand, is this an idea 
that has legs, right? Because this is something you're going to be working on for the next five to seven years. And if you're not married to it and it doesn't come from one of the deepest places, you know, in your soul, um, you're not going to have the energy or the fortitude to keep going. So I think upfront doing that work, not only for the pitch, but for yourself to convince yourself that this is an idea worth pursuing is really important. I think secondarily, um, treating the fundraising process, um, I mean, it's a numbers game, right? Like having a CRM in place. I remember I had, you know, this spreadsheet, I had this thing. I'm like, okay, if I want to raise X million dollars and each investor is going to write on average, you know, a 250K check or a 500K check, then I need, you know, six people to say yes. And if one in 20 people say yes, then I need to have like 120 pitches and <laughs> I would have all the VCs in the spreadsheet. And I would, uh, you know, I would write down how I got introduced to that VC so I could keep track of trends. And then I would never pay attention to why they said no, unless like more than five VCs gave a similar answer. And then I would reflect and change the pitch. Mm. Um, so then I started to create these patterns, right? Like the highest converting um, intro was when a founder from a portfolio company at that VC firm made the introduction. Um, and then the worst converting was like, you know, if it was a VC who passed for whatever reason, made an intro to someone else that typically never makes converted sense. for me, which makes sense. Um, only in cases where the reason was very clear, like the, for example, the firm was very late stage and, you know, mm, it, it yeah. didn't make sense or they were, you know, healthcare and they didn't, these types of things. Um, and so when I started viewing it as a numbers game, I think I became more, um, less impacted by the less no. personal. Exactly. It was just like, okay, yeah. on to the next thing. And then I became so obsessed with just getting through the numbers that I didn't even have yeah. time to think about each pitch. Whereas early on, I think I hung on to like every pitch, right? It was like, this could be the one. But when I started thinking right. about it, like, you know, just another, you know, like a sales funnel, you know, the spreadsheet, then it just became very, very, um, methodical, right? So I would say founders should think about it that way. And then the third piece is the psychology of going into fundraising, right? I think coming in, especially, you know, as a woman founder, as a black woman founder, there was this sense of like gratitude to get the meeting and mm -hmm. to just like get in front of people. And um, I remember, I think it was the CEO of Palantir came and talked to us one time at the GSV. And he was like, yeah, like, there's a certain energy I look for when founders are pitching. And I remember that really stuck with me because it, it was like the opposite of how I was viewing right. some of the pitches. You got to feel like you're the, you have to you're believe the shit. Like, Excuse my French. Yeah. They're lucky to be having time with you and you're on to the next thing if they pass. Absolutely. And they, it's like they need to want to date you. Right? Absolutely. You a commodity. This is an opportunity. I am presenting this thing that is going to take off with or without you. This is how the world is changing. This is how we're going to change the world. And we're giving you an opportunity to be a part of something really special, right? And that energy comes through in the pitch, right? If you don't believe it, other people won't believe it, right? And yeah. it's, I remember doing my pitch a lot in front of the mirror. And really, you know, it's like this concept. There's a really great quote that goes, data gets people to believe you, but stories get people to care. And so the more you can frame the pitch from the, this concept of a story, right? You know, 
in year one, how are we going to compete? And in year three, what are we going to displace? And year five, here, how we're going to transform an entire industry, right? And thinking about the pitch more from that perspective was something that really helped me, especially when you're fundraising over Zoom, right? I had raised this round without meeting any of the investors in person. And so I had to come across, ask these people for like six-figure checks, <laughs> just based off a Zoom chat. Um, and for me, the storytelling, right? I think the best companies, the best founders, they have an ability to paint and tell a story. So I can't emphasize that enough. I think that is is huge. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're inviting people to come on this incredible journey along with you. And I can say I'm so excited for all the investors and all your teammates and all our your customers, like future us too, who will be on this journey with you. It's <laughs> phenomenal. You're such an amazing founder. You're so intelligent. You're so, you've got incredible horsepower and this is going to be wonderful. I want to ask you, speaking of stories, what is your biggest challenge that you would say you've been through? So if you think about your rock bottom and how you turn that into a power hour. Oh, geez, it's crazy going through this founder journey. I feel like there's so many. <laughs> You're like, which one? From last I know, week? I like from, from today? Last year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm trying to do a better job of not glorifying the entrepreneurial journey um, because it is very lonely and it is very psychologically taxing. And um, I, darkest hour, I mean, there's so many... One that comes to mind is I remember after graduating from business school and I remember like one of the things like my, and I think this is like a mentality that some West African parents have where, you know, my, my dad mentioned, and I've seen this said in a few different places that the Stanford degree is like a nice pair of running shoes. Um, but at any moment, a barefoot person can beat you in a race. Um, and I think that I, I thought a lot about when I'd graduated from business school and I'd spent all this time and energy working on Jetpack and just wanted it to get to a point where, um, you know, it had the impact at the scale that I wanted to have. And having gone through all of these challenges with fundraising and you know, like building the product and like doing all the things like the lean startup method and like just working so hard. And I remember there was this one pitch in particular to an investor and he was just shooting everything down. And I don't know, I don't, I, at this point, I don't even think it was specific to that pitch, but with the timing of it, there were just so many things that happened. And after that pitch, I just remember my mind spiraling into this, like, what are the decisions you're making with your life? Like, you could have done, like, all of these things. Like, and I remember it was one of the first times where I had spoken to myself in a way that was along the lines of, like, you're a failure, right? And our thoughts determine so many things, right? Like, we're in our head mm -hmm. so much that we need to make sure it's a nice place to be. But I remember yeah. that was one of the moments where I was like, oh, I've just wasted so much of my life. And like, I've made these decisions and like, I could have done all these things and I've let people down. And it was just this like mental spiral, right? I was questioning all of my life decisions up until that moment. And it was 
you know, it led to this like psychological burnout. Like I just didn't have the energy. I didn't have that belief. I didn't have the fortitude. And I just remember feeling like stuck. And, mm. you know, as long as there's a next step with the founder journey, as long as like there's another thing to try, like you're going to keep going, right? As long as there's like a little glimmer of hope, a little glimmer um, of possibility, then you can have the faith. But that was like one moment where I just couldn't think of a next step and I felt so stuck. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, all of these things were supposed to happen. And it led to me just doing a lot of work, talking to other founders, which I was so excited about. That's like the way to get through. You have to connect with other founders. You have to have a community. It's such a lonely struggle. You know, this is a sign, check in on your founder friend today. <laughs> like, mm. Send them a text, send them a phone call. You know, even when things look great on LinkedIn and social media, which is like what people are supposed to be doing, check in with founders because it's a lonely journey. So I'm so grateful for that moment because it pushed me to connect with other founders. And then ultimately that gate, like other founders started sharing their dark journeys, right? Like one of my friends, as I mentioned, company, you know, now worth a billion dollars. I remember a few years ago, they were like maxing out credit cards and like trying to figure it out and like sleeping in Denny's, like literally feel like right. working all night. And it's like these stories that help you understand that it's never as linear as it seems. Yeah. And, um, Back yeah. to what we were saying. Yeah, absolutely. Before. So then how did you get through it? You connected with founders. It was wonderful to hear that you're not the only one going through this. Other people have been sleeping at Denny's, maxing credit cards, and we're all in it. And what happened next? Yeah. And I think it was... Um, that energy to just allow yourself to brainstorm some more, right? And then you get to, oh, well, yeah. let's try this in apartment. And it seems so simple now. Like when I think back to it, it's like, oh yeah, duh. Like let's try this in apartments. But you need to be in a psychological place where one, you're open to trying other things, right? I think if you're so attached to one thing working, um, you're just kind of shorting yourself of so many other opportunities that are out there, right? And really, like I said, doing the work, the internal work to unlearn certain limiting beliefs, um, to not care about external validation. I know that also sounds sim um, simple. Um, but it's work. It's work. And you really, as a founder, I mean, when you're delaying gratification for such long periods yeah. of time, <laughs> like usually no one cares as a founder until you're winning right? Yeah. And then there's years yeah. and years that you're grinding and then people start to care. Notice when like there's certain milestones like raising money, which is usually not the best indicator <laughs> of mm -hmm. how a company is doing. But then we romanticize these milestones. But the way to get through that is to have other things that provide that validation, um, preferably from yourself, um, that you know, lead to that. So it's just a ton of internal work. And I think those were the most important things that I've done to get to this point. And I hear no all the time. Like literally I heard no this morning. Right. And so mm -hmm. it's just a part of the game and, you know, you're attached to the vision and you keep going. Totally. And I love what you said about well, what we talked about earlier about the no's aren't personal. You have to put yourself also in the shoes of the person telling you no. Maybe they're scared of the economy. Maybe they have other criteria that they're looking at. It rarely has to do with you personally, and it's, it is a numbers game. 
it is incredibly valuable to connect with other folks that are going through the journey. I am so grateful that we are more connected now than ever before. And it's so much easier to get a handle of another founder and hear what their process has been like. I know you've done so much personal work on yourself, which is we're all works in progress. We all need to be doing this. Um, and then it sounds like you were able to get healthier, take care of yourself. I think sleep more, just do the things that nourish Fatima. And because of that, you're able to get into a mental mind space where you were just literally more creative, more open, more open to other signals that you were able to see with sugar in your apartment building. And sometimes like with the founding journey, it's such a long process. You need to tackle it sustainably. I think it's Founders tend to be obsessed with their product. And sometimes that means you're working all the time and that means you're exhausted. And the more sustainable approach is taking care of ourselves so that we can take care of the business and the product. So I'm so happy that you were able to get out of that and get into the power hour and look where you're at today. What an inspiration. Thank you. And I mean, this entire conversation has been phenomenal. Um, the questions have helped me reflect on some of these things I haven't <laughs> thought about in a while. Um, so I'm grateful for the presentation. And I just love what you're putting together here. Um, hearing people's stories, I think, is such a critical part of finding that energy and being inspired to keep going. And there's nothing that inspires me more than hearing other founders' stories and journeys. So I think what you're doing is so special and is going to help a lot of people um, keep going. I adore you. Thanks for saying that. That's the goal. That's the goal to create a positive, warm space to all be works in progress and squeeze the best out of life together. Speaking of squeezing the best out of life, lady, when are we going dancing? I miss dancing oh, with you. Man, I miss <laughs> dancing with you. I miss it so much. <laughs> Fatima is such a great dancer. <laughs> I love that whole experience. Well, one, you guys need to come to LA. When we did the show. For yes, sure. Yes, we, we need. Marcin loves LA. I love, 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 love LA. I love LA. And now that so I think about the come. show, do you remember how intense we were with that? Like the transitions, yes, the, the song. Yeah. <laughs> that was like a whole class. Like we're at practice, like hours. <laughs> yeah. So for context, I was at business school. We have a show each year. It's called the GSB show. And we always have an Afrobeats session. And Fatima was teaching all of us. She was our choreographer and she was beautifully, wonderfully intense. And we were all, all, all of us that were dancing were also very intense. We're show up to practice, having practice, like, okay, let's make sure we're super precise in the transitions. But most of all, it was just a ton of fun. And we got so much fun. We got to repeat soon. So we'll come visit you in LA. Please. I can't wait to we'll meet go Charles. dancing. My like life saying right now is like when it comes to life, anything, just dance your way through. Like both literally. It makes and me so happy. It's the best. It's the best. Like I love I've... dancing. Denai loves dancing. Aaron loves dancing. I know. And she moved, right? Yeah, she's in the Bay. Although she's she's made a couple oh, okay. of LA trips as well. So we all need to go dancing. That is like the goal oh. here. <laughs> Amazing. You got to improve your texting game, though, so we can Why? plan. No, well, there's a lot of sayings about people who are bad texters and how they're amazing in person because we give you. I know they the are because they're so present. It's great. So all right. I can't wait. I love you so much. This was wonderful. Love Thanks you, for too. Coming Thank on. you for inviting me. This was great. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.